good evening, folks. Good evening, folks. Uh, if you're um, if you're in this room, it means you're at Socrates in the city. So be sure you have it right, because um, there's all kinds of other stuff going on in the club. I just want you to know this is Socrates in the city. By the way, there are still seats available. Uh, pretty much any place you see uh, an open seat, it's available. So there are many seats over there in the non-bar uh, region. And, uh, but I think, uh, anyway, uh, Justin, just so you know, there's, there's still seats if people are, are coming in. But um, let me officially then welcome you to Socrates in the City. Uh, my name is uh, Eric Metaxas. I will be your host. And you will be my customers, I guess, is the term. Uh, nice to see so many of you customers here in this, uh, in this hot weather. Thank you for, uh, for coming. Uh, Memorial Day has already come and gone. Uh, for me, that means I can uh, wear a seersucker and not be wrong. And uh, I just want you to know, Memorial Day, seersucker, you can, you can do that if you like. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has just walked in. I don't want to embarrass her, so don't look. But uh, one of the people back there. Um, all right, tonight, as I think most of you know, uh, we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Michael Ward. Uh, when he is not writing, Dr. Ward is the chaplain of Peterhouse at Cambridge University. Uh, you are not, I understand, supposed to say Peterhouse College, just Peterhouse. If you say Peterhouse College, evidently that's some kind of bawdy, Chaucerian sort of uh, insult. Uh, <laughs> You know the Brits, they've got their stuff. Um, but uh, he is, in fact, the chaplain uh, of Peterhouse, and he's now rather famously, I think, the author of the groundbreaking book that we will uh, hear about this evening, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Uh, Dr. Ward tells me there, there were nine uh, heavens, but the publisher thought seven sounded punchier, and it would... Uh, it would move more product, you know. So, uh, if we, can we turn the lights up just a little bit? Pardon? Well, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so uh, he'll explain uh, how many heavens uh, there there actually are to you. But it, it, I wanted to be very, very careful uh, to make sure that I explain to you why I think his book is mind blowing and groundbreaking because you may have missed that in my several emails on the topic. Um, uh, first of all, most of you, I think, know uh, that there are seven Narnia books written by C.S. Lewis, uh, and that, in fact, those books are some of the most extraordinary uh, children's books and, indeed, books uh, ever written. They've sold millions and millions of copies over the last 50 years, and in the last, year, uh, last few years, they've begun to be turned into fabulous movies by the folks at Walden uh, Films, the... Uh, second one, Prince Caspian, uh, just came out recently. My daughter and I saw it, and it was absolutely fantastic, except for the foul language, a lot of foul language. Uh, it's really, it's nasty. Um, there's, a, there's a fox character called Red Fox, and uh, he, just, he just can't stop cursing, uh, but it's sweet, it's sweet. It's like, a, it's like a David Mamet play, but it's sweet. So, but anyway... Actually, technically it's not cursing, it's fine. Um, 
wonderful movie, but uh, as I say, there are seven books, and uh, they were written by Lewis, and since they were written by, by Lewis, uh, I don't mean since that time, but I mean because they were written by Lewis, they were always suspected by Lewis uh, scholars to have some sort of hidden um, key, that, there would, that it was unlikely that he wrote seven of them just because he wrote seven and then he was done. Um, there had to be some reason, and scholars have been debating this uh, for about five decades or 50 years, whichever comes first, and, and they have been debating this looking for what it was, and um, some have suggested that maybe uh, each book corresponded somehow to maybe one of the seven deadly sins or to the seven sacraments or something, but no one um, uh, ever discovered what that was and it's been bothering people for a long time I think people f forgot recently that you know it would be really possible to to figure this out probably they just overestimated Lewis or something um, but a number of theories were put forward I um, even had put forward a theory that each book corresponded to one of the seven dwarfs uh, at some point <laughs> but um and uh, I could never I could, the only thing is that it just eluded me drove me crazy I could never nail down which book uh, corresponded to Sneezy, and uh, so eventually, sadly, I abandoned my theory. But um, it's sad. But last year, uh, I heard that someone claimed to have cracked this uh, code, and when I got a hold of this book, uh, Planet Narnia, by the man from whom you will hear in just a few minutes, I have to say I was absolutely beside myself. Uh, it strikes me that if he has, in fact, nailed this, which parenthetically he has, uh, then this is the greatest literary discovery uh, of our time, and that's that. Put that in quotes, write it down, that's what it is. Um, it's astounding, and I hope you have some sense of that. If you don't, you should, and if you don't, don't tell people that you don't, because it's embarrassing. You should know this. It's astounding. Um, okay, now, at Socrates and City, I've never hidden my affection for C.S. Lewis. Every three years, approximately, I go to a C.S. Lewis conference in England, which is called Oxbridge. Uh, it's fabulous. In fact, Michael Ward will be there uh, this uh, summer. Uh, about half of the speakers at Socrates and the City, it seems to me, uh, are folks that I heard at uh, Oxbridge, at the, at the conference. Um, yeah, I just go there and get to hear these great folks, and then I can poach them for my own purposes here in New York. So I kind of think of Oxbridge as kind of like my farm team. Um, but, uh, but what's wonderful uh, about being there, really, uh, is that there's something about C.S. Lewis that draws people uh, who are asking the big questions uh, in life, questions about the meaning of life, the existence of God, the reason for suffering and evil in the world. Lewis dealt with those questions in all of his work, uh, not just the books of apologetics, which are extraordinary, but also the works of fiction and the poetry and the children's books. So anytime you're dealing with Lewis, you are dealing with the big questions, which is why I feel he's particularly, extremely, quintessentially appropriate uh, as a subject for Socrates uh, in the city. So... I should say, two years ago, we had another Narnia-related uh, evening. We debuted a film called Beyond Narnia. Now, was anybody here for that? Or actually, it wasn't here, but anybody go to that? So a number of you were at that. Uh, it, w it wasn't really that good, so you didn't miss anything. But um, no, it, that's, it's not true. I, even if it were, I couldn't say that, because two of the principals of that event are here tonight. So um, 
it was it, it was an extraordinary event. It's an extraordinary film. Uh, the film's called Beyond Narnia. It's directed by Norman Stone, who is hiding around here someplace. Where is he? There he is, the director, Norman Stone. Uh, don't applaud. He doesn't care. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Norman is an award-winning director. It was Norman who brought Shadowlands uh, into existence uh, for the BBC in 1985. It became a Broadway uh, production play and, uh, sadly, a Hollywood film starring Deborah Winger. Um, nobody's perfect. He's a nice guy. Uh, uh, he's now working on a film about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Deborah Winger will not be in the cast. Uh, thank you, Norman. You've redeemed yourself in all of our eyes, let me just say thank you. Uh, but actually, I'm also working on a book biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I think we can uh, assume that in the next couple of years we'll have some sort of Bonhoeffer uh, evening um, here. Uh, now, the other person who was a part of our C.S. Lewis evening not so long ago, uh, Tom Howard. Uh, the author, Tom, is also here, and he'll be raising his hand in just a moment. No, he won't. Anyway, he's the guy who's not raising his hand with the bow tie. Uh, Tom Howard uh, is here. I'm thrilled uh, that he's here. He's the author of certainly one of the most uh, wonderful books I have ever read uh, in my life, Chance or the Dance, uh, published by Ignatius Press. If you have not read Chance or the Dance, run, don't walk, get a copy, and read it and reread it and give it to your friends because it's something that you really ought to read. Uh, the good news is it's fun to read, but you ought to read it even if it weren't fun to read. We definitely have uh, copies of that at the bookstore here, and if you'd uh, like Tom to, to sign a copy, I'm sure uh, he would. Uh, Tom actually spoke at Socrates in the City a few years ago on the subject uh, of that book, so he's kind of doubly a Socrates alumnus, and we're thrilled um, to have him with us this evening. Now, I should mention that Michael Ward, uh, who's going to be speaking, lived uh, for three years at the Kilns. Some of you know what that is. The Kilns is the home of C.S. Lewis, uh, and Michael Ward lived there between 1996 and 1999. But Tom Howard visited the Kilns in 1963 and knocked on the door, and C.S. Lewis opened the door. And, and call the cops or the bobbies or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, no, uh, quite, the, quite the contrary. Invited uh, Tom in and they had tea or whatever you do in England and they chatted. They didn't speak, they chatted. Um, but uh, I have to say, it just thrills me the idea of it. Um, but uh, so we have a number of uh, wonderful C.S. Lewis people here and I know that there are others as well. Okay, now Michael Ward's bio, as you may have seen from the... Uh, Internet says that other than being a C.S. Lewis scholar and a chaplain at Peterhouse and then writing this book, he's really done nothing to speak of. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I believe, uh, evidently he was just like riding the rails with the other hobos or something. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but in the bio, it says that before the publication of this amazing book, Planet Narnia, his chief claim to fame was that in the 1999 James Bond movie, The World is Not Enough. Uh, he handed James Bond, uh, a.k.a. 007, Pierce Brosnan, a pair of X-ray spectacles in the movie. Now, that's, that's true. If you've seen the movie, uh, if you've read the website, uh, somehow he snuck in there and got this uh, job. But uh, they needed a, a Brit with a plummy accent, and you know those are hard to find these days. A lot of, a lot of football hooligans, but very few, uh, very few people like Michael Ward with that kind of an accent. So they grabbed him, and he is... 
Uh, he's in this movie, and if you go back and watch the movie, you'll see in that scene with Pierce Brosnan, uh, Michael Ward handing the pair of x-ray specs to James Bond in The World Is Not Enough. Now, it's a very strange thing, I have to admit, to have a Socrates uh, speaker claim to have done something as vulgar, let's be honest, um, as, as appear in a, in a, in a movie. Uh, I mean, let's face it, it's an embarrassment, and I'm going to be... Uh, I just want to say I don't, I don't want it to leave the room. If, so if you can just... We've always had that, you know, what happens at Socrates stays at Socrates kind of uh, attitude for, for Michael and the other Brits. Uh, I guess you'd, you'd call it a mum's the word governor kind of attitude. You know, just uh, don't share what you hear, okay? Just keep it private. But, um, but to get back uh, just for a moment to the cheap, uh, tawdry lack of self-respect it would take to appear in a motion picture, uh, especially of this, like, popcorn shoot 'em up uh, kind... We all would like to think that the dignified scholars and thinkers that appear before us here uh, at this sacred podium would, uh, would be above such self-abasing activities. Um, but as this brave and painful admission by Dr. Ward has told us, that's not the case. And we need to wake up and to face the fact that indeed some of the speakers, indeed many of the speakers at Socrates, even besides Michael Ward, are quite simply frauds. <laughs> and, and I should clarify, by frauds, you know, I, I, uh, I only mean to say that they're terrible people um, <laughs> who are living lies and uh, pretending to be something they aren't, which is to say acting uh, and in movies of the summer variety. So uh, now you're, you're obviously wondering, I can hear you wondering, which other Socrates uh, speakers have been in summer blockbusters. And uh, if you promise to keep it right here, I'll, I'll uh, tell you. But, uh, uh, in, and incidentally, in every single case, um, and this makes no sense, but if you go back and look at footage, you'll see that it's true. But in every case, just as with Michael Ward's appearance, the Socrates speaker is handing some, someone in the movie an object of some sort. Uh, I don't even know how that's possible. I suppose it's just one of those kooky coincidences that fate sort of throws at us, but uh, that, that is the case, and so I'll, I'll tell you now what they are. Besides uh, Michael Ward handing the x-ray specs to 007, uh, the other Socrates speakers handing uh, stuff to people in dopey summer blockbusters uh, is, uh, okay, I guess I should start, um, Tom, you said, I could, you said I could tell the people, uh, you didn't mind if I share this tonight, uh, and it will not leave the room, I promise you, Tom, uh, on your honor, folks, please, because he'll know it was you. Um, in the 1968 movie, Herbie the Love Bug, Tom, don't, don't laugh, please. Tom hands an Allen wrench to a mechanic played by Buddy Hackett. It's hard to imagine the author of Chance of the Dance handing a, a wrench to a grease monkey. But the fact that Tom was even in the same room as, as Buddy Hackett is just is what kills me. But it happened and now you know and just don't repeat it because Tom is embarrassed. Um, Alright, who else? Norman Stone. Norman, I'm not going to leave you out. Norman's a friend. He's guilty too. In Jaws, 1975, in the morgue scene uh, he hands Richard Dreyfus a hand. You remember that scene? It's like a box with a limb or something. Anyway, the morgue guy was Norman 
It's done. Norman, it's over. Was that so bad? It's okay. You're going to be fine. Um, now this, I, actually I didn't believe this one. I had, had to see this on YouTube. N.T. Wright, the bishop, the bish, the bish. Uh, in the movie Rocky in 1976, he hands Burgess Meredith a bucket of spit. He was just here. Can you imagine? He was a lot younger back then. But the Bishop of Durham handing the penguin a bucket of spit. What is that about? I don't know. And now he's some big shot bishop, you know, telling you how to live and stuff. All right, Oz Guinness. Uh, in Planet of the Apes. Uh, Actually, no, that, that's not right. It was 1973. It was, it was battle for the planet of the apes. It was the last one, really, the worst. Um, and you can't tell it's him um, because he's, he's got to walk on. He plays one of the, one of the flunkies of, uh, uh, you know, the mean gorilla General Ursus. His, like, chief flunky, that's Oz Guinness. And he hands Dr. Zaius, the orangutan, some kind of sacred scroll uh, in one scene. And anyway, you watch that film, and that's Oz in the ape suit. And finally, you can see almost see from the way he walks that it's Oz Guinness. Um, and finally, and this is sick, but Sir John Polkinghorne, uh, he plays a Nazi in The Sound of Music. And he hands another Nazi an Allen wrench. That's true. That is true. That's true. Anyway, it's a shameful list of indiscretions. Uh, but now you know, and we're going we're gonna to move on, just digest that, and we're going to move on, never mention it again. Uh, we're going to move on to our speaker, Dr. Michael Ward, who I may have mentioned uh, appears uh, in a movie with 007. Did I mention that? Uh, anyway, besides that, he is a graduate of Oxford, so he has done some things besides the ride the rails. Uh, he has tutored and lectured at Oxford, Stanford, William and Mary, Wheaton, and evidently, I hear he's written a rather amazing uh, book, which we're going to hear about tonight. It's so amazing that Walter Hooper, some of us know, uh, who was C.S. Lewis's personal secretary during his final months, who's the literary advisor to the C.S. Lewis estate, ha he said about the book, uh, Planet Narnia, I cannot contain my admiration. Uh, no other book on Lewis has ever shown such comprehensive knowledge of his works and such depth of insight. We know uh, Walter Hooper, and we know he, he blows a lot of smoke, let's face it. Uh, he'll say anything. Uh, but there are others besides uh, Hooper who have said some nice things as well. For example, Armand Nikolai, who spoke here at Socrates and City just a few years ago on the question of God, C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud said, uh, Ward's book reads so much like a detective story that it's difficult to put down. That is a great, that's a rave. Um, Alan Jacobs, professor of English at Wheaton College said, noting Michael Ward's claim that he's discovered the secret imaginative key to the Narnia books, the sensible reader responds by erecting a castle of skepticism my own castle was gradually but utterly demolished as I read this thoughtful, scholarly, and vividly written book. That about says it. And if you know Alan Jacobs, you know that's, that's really amazing. So we are now uh, going to stop flattering and embarrassing Michael Ward. Uh, we're going to hear from him. Uh, we're going to have time for some Q&A. We should be done by um, 8.20. Uh, and for the first time ever, we're going to have a PowerPoint presentation, so I hope uh, you can see it. 
And now, Dr. Michael Ward. Before I begin, I think we ought to pray for forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> forgiveness for, for Eric for saying all those lies about me. And forgiveness for me for enjoying them so much. I want to begin with some words written about two and a half millennia ago. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So declares the psalmist in Psalm 19, the favorite psalm of C.S. Lewis, depicted here on the cover of Time magazine in the 1940s, just after he published the Screwtape Letters, That's why he's got a devil and an angel either side of his head. Lewis described uh, the 19th Psalm as the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the finest lyrics in the world. And in the next supposedly 45 minutes or so, I'm going to give you uh, a brief overview of how Lewis thought about the heavens and how he wove the imagery of the seven heavens into the books for which he's best known, the Seven Chronicles of Narnia. Narnia presents us with a particular problem, if you ask me, and solving this problem matters because stories such as these, which are very popular and accessible to children, have a good claim to being the most important kind of imaginative literature that there is. Plato said in the Republic that the beginning is the biggest part of any work and therefore it's of supreme importance in that work which is the construction of the human person that children should hear good fables and not bad ones. You might know the Jesuit maxim, give me a boy until he's seven and I will show you the man. That encapsulates the importance of what we tell the young, how we train their emotional life, how we form their imaginative responses. The children's author Philip Pullman, who is certainly no Jesuit and no friend either to the Chronicles of Narnia, shares this view. Pullman has said of himself and his fellow authors, we teach the world we create. He means the imaginative world that an author gets his readers to inhabit. We teach the world we create. Pullman, in his Dark Materials trilogy, creates an atheistical world. Lewis's world of Narnia is quite different. Lewis creates, and therefore teaches, a world that has a particular imaginative problem. It's a problem of imaginative incoherence, or at any rate, of apparent imaginative incoherence. For example, in the first of these seven books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we find a great variety of disparate elements all drawn together seemingly at random. Father Christmas, a snow queen out of the pages of a Hans Anderson fairy tale, English children fresh from E. Nesbitt, dryads and naiads and fauns and other characters from Greek and Roman mythology, and so on and so forth. Is there any imaginative logic governing these choices? Lewis's great friend Tolkien thought that there wasn't. Tolkien was the first to voice the view that the Chronicles are just a hodgepodge, a mishmash. And his opinion of the series has rumbled on uh, ever since. Other critics like Humphrey Carpenter and A.N. Wilson have suggested also that the Chronicles are just chaotic, random, slapdash. Is Lewis therefore teaching his readers that the world itself, the real world, is also uh, a jumble? inconsistent, without order, 
Most readers don't seem to have come away with this impression. Fifty years and more after these books were first published, they're still selling incredibly well, about at least three and a half million copies annually worldwide in over 30 different languages. It's hard to see how they could have become such popular classics if they were just haphazardly thrown together, just dashed off in an afternoon, as some seem to think they were. But could there be some kind of underlying imaginative coherence to the series, some kind of unifying thread that doesn't immediately meet the eye? Lewis himself once said that the whole series was about Christ. And a Christ-centred reading does have a good deal to recommend it, because the Christ figure, Aslan, the Lion King, is the only character who appears in all seven books. And he certainly does fulfil several of the major Christological functions. In The Magician's Nephew, Aslan is Narnia's creator. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's the Redeemer. And in The Last Battle, he's the Judge. Yes, but these books make up less than half the sequence. What Christocentric explanation accounts for the way Lewis has chosen to portray Aslan in the other four books? We might expect him to have given us a Narnian version of other major elements in Christ's life and ministry, a Narnian nativity, maybe, or a Narnian ascension, or a Narnian Pentecost. But instead, Aslan's roles in these other four books are very various and seemingly unrelated to major biblical events. Sure, there are some allusions, but nothing significant, as in the other three books. In Prince Caspian, for instance, Aslan enters the story amongst dancing trees before giving a great war cry. In Silver Chair, he doesn't appear bodily in Narnia at all. He's confined to his own high country above the clouds. In The Horse and His Boy, he's mistaken for two or maybe three lions, and he does a great deal of dashing about in that story. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he's seen flying in a sunbeam. There seems to be little rhyme or reason, Christologically speaking, for the way Aslan is portrayed in these other four books. So if we look to the Christ figure for a sense of coherence, this problem that I talk about only seems to get worse on the face of it. And when we consider Lewis's general habits of mind, this problem becomes only more acute because his work in general contains an unusually high sense of consistency and coherence. He wasn't a slapdash writer or thinker. His friend Owen Barfield once remarked that what Lewis thought about everything was somehow secretly present in what he said about anything. And if you look at his poetry, for example, which is often overlooked, you find that his poetry contains a fantastically high level of metrical and phonetic complexity. It's really mind-boggling. And in addition to writing intricate works of his own, Lewis studied the intricate works of others. He once said that intricacy is a mark of the medieval mind. Writers like Chaucer and Dante and, and others, he said, like to present us with something which cannot be taken in at a glance. Something that at first looks planless, though all is planned. Everything leads to everything else, he says, but often by very intricate paths. And Lewis thought the same about the great work of art, which was the creation. God's great work of artistry in creating the cosmos was another fantastically intricate design, down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect, Lewis says in one place. Now those who have studied Lewis most closely are aware of this problem presented by the Narnia books, that on the face of it they look a bit random, but Lewis wasn't a random kind of writer. And so they've gone looking for some kind of cryptic theme that might tie the seven books together. 
Eric mentioned a, a few of them. Uh, the seven sacraments has been one guess. Uh, the seven Catholic sacraments, even though Lewis wasn't a Catholic. Um, that, that theory didn't work. Another couple of critics have tried to link the books to the seven deadly sins, but they assign different sins to different books. I myself once made a half-hearted attempt to link the chronicles to different plays by Shakespeare. Eric tried the seven dwarfs. <laughs> None of these theories has worked, especially not that one. But it was when I wasn't looking for it that I think I stumbled across the real answer to this imaginative conundrum. And it was quite the most exciting thing that's happened to me while holding a book in my hands. I wasn't sitting naked in my bath. Um, like Archimedes, I didn't shout Eureka and run down the street naked. But I was lying in bed, semi-clothed, and jumped out of my bed with excitement when I stumbled across this. I was halfway through my PhD on Lewis's theological imagination at the time, and I'm pleased to say, as Eric mentioned, that other Lewis scholars like Alan Jacobs and Walter Hooper and one he didn't mention, who is in the front row here, Andrew Cunier, uh, the first person to do an Oxford doctorate on C.S. Lewis, in fact I think the only person to do an Oxford doctorate on C.S. Lewis, uh, who is kindly hosting me during my stay in New York, uh, he is also, I think, supporting my findings. And Oxford University Press have now published these findings uh, as Planet Narnia, which I must, in must inform you, by the way, is very reasonably priced. <laughs> but you may already be rolling your eyes. I mean, you're still looking quite uh, politely attentive, but I suspect some of you are erecting your castle of scepticism as I speak. Um, is it at all plausible that Lewis could have invented and kept a secret? Is it? possible that it could have gone unnoticed for so long, why would he have done this? Well, let me tell you, there are at least five good reasons why he might have done it. And I'll trot through these quickly before we come on to the main theme itself. And the first of these reasons has to do with Lewis's own temperament. He was quite capable of being secretive. His friend, George Sayer, who wrote a good biography of him called Jack, The Life and Times of C.S. Lewis. Jack, of course, was Lewis's nickname says in that biography, Jack never ceased to be secretive. And if we're looking for examples of his secretiveness, the most obvious is the fact that when he got married in his late 50s, he kept his marriage secret for the best part of a year. Now, how many people do you know do that? <laughs> it's the most extraordinary thing to do when you think about it. Norman knows all about it, having made a film on our very subject. And we've all seen that film, and so we've become accustomed to this element in Lewis's story. We think it's natural, but it's a highly extraordinary thing to do, to keep a marriage secret. The whole point of a marriage is that it's a public relationship. A private marriage is a contradiction in terms. Now, of course, there were good reasons why Lewis needed or wanted to keep the marriage secret, but then there are good reasons why he kept his Narnia theme secret too. His autobiography, Surprised by Joy, left out so many things that one of his friends joked that it would have been better entitled not Surprised by Joy, but Suppressed by Jack. <laughs> he was a secretive man. Psychologically, he was quite capable of being secretive. Now, we in our Oprah gen uh, generation, when it's customary to go on the television and let it all hang out before an audience of millions, find this rather hard to rec recognize. Um, but Lewis was born in 1898. He was a Victorian. The second aspect of Lewis's interest in hiddenness has to do with uh, theology. 
Lewis's characteristic way of thinking about God. Colossians 1.17 says, Christ is the one in whom all things hold together. If you were a writer like Lewis, wanting to write a story in which you put a Christ character into your cast list, how would you go about it? Would you, would you just invent some Christ-like character who goes around doing Christ-like things? That would be a good and natural biblical way of proceeding. But how would you get in that other aspect of Christ's character, the, the more cosmic dimension, the eternal, the infinite dimension? Because Christ isn't just a, a solitary individual figure moving about a neutral stage doing things to people. He's the one who makes the stage. He's the inner meaning of history. He's the, the eternal son of God. He is God the son. He's the word of the father by whom all things were made, in whom all things hold together. And Lewis paraphrased that Colossians verse, rendering it as, Christ is the all-pervasive principle of concretion or cohesion, whereby the universe holds together. Now, the universe, of course, includes you and me and C.S. Lewis and our understandings of Christ. Our very images of Christ are themselves held together by him, if this definition is correct. We can't, in that sense, step outside him and look back at him as if from some entirely external spectator's point of view. And this puts us into something of a predicament, which Lewis wrote about, saying, The fact which is in one respect the most obvious and primary fact, and through which alone you have access to all the other facts, may be precisely the one that is most easily forgotten. Forgotten not because it is so remote or abstruse, but because it is so near and so obvious. And that is exactly how the supernatural has been forgotten, he says. In other words, the divine nature is so fundamental to our whole creaturely existence, it's closer to us than we are to ourselves, it can be overlooked. Psychology, theology, thirdly, epistemology, Lewis's thinking about thinking. He once said that an influence which cannot evade our consciousness will not go very deep. But what did he mean by consciousness? He meant two things principally, enjoyment and contemplation. He wrote about these in an essay called Meditation in a Tool Shed, which I'll, I'll summarize quickly before we carry on. He pictures himself standing in the darkness of his tool shed one sunny day. It's bright outside, but it's dark inside. And through a crack at the top of the door, he can see a beam of light slanting down through the darkness of the shed. He can see little particles of dust floating in the sunbeam, and it lights up a small patch of the floor. And this he uses as an image of one kind of thinking, one type of consciousness, what he calls contemplation looking at something from the outside. The sort of knowledge you have about someone when you're just reading about them in the newspapers. He then shifts his position so that the beam of light is no longer falling on the floor, it's now falling on his eyes. And instantly, he says, the whole picture changed. He no longer saw the beam of light. The beam of light, in fact, vanished. He didn't see it anymore. He saw along it. And what he saw along the beam was the crack at the top of the door, the leaves on the tree waving in the wind outside, and millions of miles away, the sun itself. And this he uses as an image of a second type of consciousness, what he calls enjoyment, looking along the beam. It's similar to the French connaître, knowledge by acquaintance. If contemplation is like savoir knowledge, Enjoyment is like connaître, the sort of knowledge you have, not when you're reading about someone in the newspapers, but when you're in a relationship with them. You don't know about them, you know them. 
And Lewis's point in this uh, essay is to encourage us to try out every question in both kinds of knowledge, insofar as that's possible. He says we should be like the ancient Persians who debated everything twice, once when they were sober and once when they were drunk. He's wanting to make us think about the particular benefits to our knowledge of being inside an experience when the beam becomes invisible. And these ideas about consciousness weren't limited to Lewis's theoretical and philosophical side. He also applied them to literature as a literary critic. In 1940, he read a paper, he wrote a paper entitled The Kappa Element in Romance. Kappa, he took from the initial letter of the Greek word krypton meaning cryptic or hidden. And the thrust of the paper was, was this, that stories, romances, are most valuable for their quality or their atmosphere, not so much for their plot. The example he uses to kick off this essay is drawn from The Last of the Mohicans. When the hero of the story in The Last of the Mohicans is half sleeping by his bivouac fire in the woods, while a redskin with a tomahawk is silently creeping up on him from behind with, with a tomahawk, what, what makes for the essence of the scene, Lewis says, is not simply the fact that our hero is in danger, but that he is in danger from redskin danger. A crook with a revolver would have presented a, an equally great danger or even a greater danger, but... A crook with a revolver doesn't belong in that world. It has to be redskin danger. That's what the story admits us to. The feeling of redskinery, Lewis says, in his highly politically uncorrect 1940s terminology. <laughs> Lewis says this, to be stories at all, stories must be series of events. But it must be understood that this series, the plot as we call it, is only really a net whereby to catch something else. The real theme may be, and perhaps usually is, something that has no sequence in it, something other than a process and much more like a state or a quality. The Last of the Mohicans admits us to the quality of red skinnery, a world of snow and snowshoes, of canoes and wigwams and feathered headdresses and war paint and Hiawatha names. That's its mysterious, epiphenomenal, and invisible quality, which is woven into every part of the story, everywhere implicit, but nowhere explicit, Lewis says. And incidentally, this term, the kappa element, although I don't think Lewis coined the term before 1940, the basic idea appears in his writings many years earlier, in fact, as early as when he was 18. We find him writing to a friend about a story which he, Lewis, had recently written. And Lewis says to this friend, I fear you will like the main gist of my story even less when you grasp it, if you ever do. <laughs> For, as is proper in romance, the inner meaning is carefully hidden. Lewis's psychological capacity for secretiveness, his interest in theological hiddenness, his interest in epistemological invisibleness, his interest in literary hiddenness. Fourth, uh, fifth and finally, um, as a literary historian, Lewis noted that there was one other kind of way in which hiddenness exists in literature. He writes about this in his review of the Oxford Book of Christian Verse. He calls it a technique of transferred classicism. In transferred classicism, God is disguised in some degree as a mere God. Chaucer, Spencer, Milton, many other poets adopted this technique of transferred classicism in which, as Lewis wrote, the gods are God incognito and everyone is in the secret. 
Paganism, he says, is the religion of poetry through which the author can express at any moment just so much or so little of his real religion as his art requires. And just as those medieval and renaissance writers transferred classical pagan gods into their presentation of the god of their believed religion, the god of Christianity, so C.S. Lewis has taken that practice, I believe, and deployed it in his own very original way in the Narnia books. So we're now back at the main point. How do the Narnia Chronicles hold together if they do? And here it's worth emphasizing that Lewis was first and foremost not a writer of fiction. Everybody knows him as the author of Narnia, or maybe Screwtape, or Mere Christianity, but he wasn't a writer of fiction any more than he was a writer of Christian apologetics, professionally speaking. Professionally, he was an academic. He taught for nearly 30 years at Oxford and nearly 10 at Cambridge. He had a highly distinguished academic career. And a central part of the medieval worldview that it was Lewis's job to study and write about was their understanding of the cosmos. If we were medieval people looking up at the night sky, Lewis argues, the sky would have meant something very different to us from what it means to us these days. These days you look up at the night sky and you think you're looking up into empty space, a trackless vacuity, he says. But back then, in medieval times, you would have felt as if you were looking up not into empty space, but into the heavens. The universe would have had a built and ordered quality to it. It would have been a cosmos, not a chaos. Cosmos comes from a Greek word meaning to organize or arrange or structure or embellish. It's where we get the word cosmetics from. When you apply cosmetics to your face, you are bringing out the structure and pattern of your features. Cosmologists, likewise, bring out the structure and pattern of the universe. And medieval cosmologists thought that the universe was structured according to a series of seven different heavens. In the first part of the night sky, you would have felt that you were looking up into the sphere of the moon, the planet Luna, as she was known. Above moon came the sphere of Mercury. Then in the third heaven, Venus. You recall how St. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about a man in Christ who was taken up to the third heaven. This, this concept of seven heavens exists in Jewish literature, both before and after the time of Christ. In the fourth sphere was the planet Sol, the sun. The sun was regarded as a planet, just as much as the others were. This, of course, is long before astronomers had discovered Uranus or Neptune, let alone the ill-fated Pluto. <laughs> Poor old Pluto. What was he, a planet for about 70 years, and now just a dwarf planet? Above the sun came the sphere of Mars, then in the sixth heaven, Jupiter, and in the seventh heaven, Saturn. Each planet revolving more rapidly than the lower ones and each exerting, so it was believed, peculiar influences over people on the earth and events and even the metals in earth's crust. And beyond Saturn's sphere, we would have seen the heaven of the fixed stars. And way beyond that, we would have got out of the created order altogether into the very home of God. And Lewis investigated the literary history of this system very closely and worked hard to communicate to his university audiences the precise nature of each medieval planet. As a scholar of the 16th century, he was deeply acquainted with the Copernican Revolution, that great revolution in cosmological thought that was brought about by the Polish astronomer Copernicus, who showed us that the sun was central. We go round the sun, the sun doesn't go round us. And this was a pretty mammoth change in human thought. 
from, going, from thinking that you were the centre of the universe to realising that you are peripheral. And all sorts of imaginative effects came in the wake of this cosmological advance. And Lewis thought that not all of these imaginative effects were beneficial. He thought that some of them resulted in the disenchantment of the universe. The, the symbolic and the poetic and the spiritual qualities associated with this old cosmos were discarded over time. That's why in one of his Narnia books he has a character who's a fallen star. And one of the children from England says to this fallen star, in our world a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. And the star replies, even in your world that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. In other words, you can't reduce the planetary bodies to mere matter. That is not what they are. It's only what they are made of. What they are is, in fact, messengers of divine creativity and artistry. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So much had this old cosmology been discarded that Lewis couldn't even count on his university students knowing that these seven planets give us the names of the days of the week. And I've been astonished talking about this discovery with people. Even some of my most distinguished Cambridge colleagues are surprised when you tell them that Saturday is named after Saturn, and Sunday after the sun, and Monday after the moon, and the other four days of the week after the other four planets, except in those cases we use the Norse names rather than the Roman ones. So Lewis became uh, interested in reacquainting people with, with the qualities of this old cosmology. It was his professional concern to do so. If you've got the handout in front of you, uh, turn now to have a look at the first quotation on that sheet. This is what Lewis says about Jupiter. In one of his uh, academic books, The Discarded Image, he says, Jupiter is the king. The character he produces in men would now be very imperfectly expressed by the word jovial and isn't very easy to grasp. We may say that it is kingly, but we must think of a king at peace, enthroned, taking his leisure, serene. The jovial character is cheerful, festive, yet temperate, tranquil, magnanimous. When this planet dominates, we may expect halcyon days and prosperity. In Dante, that is to say, in the Divine Comedy uh, by Dante, one of the Middle Ages' greatest poems, Wise and just princes go to his sphere when they die. He is the best planet and is called the greater fortune, Fortuna Major. So that's one very brief summary of one planet. But Lewis had much more than a merely academic interest in this old cosmology. He was enamoured of it. He responded to it imaginatively and theologically. It features strongly in that trilogy of novels that he wrote during the Second World War, the, the Ransom Trilogy or the Cosmic Trilogy. The first book is set on Mars. The second book is set on Venus. The third book is set on Earth, but features a chapter called The Descent of the Gods, in which these planetary intelligences come down to Earth to bring about the end of the story. And Lewis included these astrological characters, not because he literally believed in them, he didn't, but because they were part of, a, of an ancient, and in his view, a, a continuingly fruitful and suggestive symbolic tradition, as we will see. If I had time, I would read you the passage from uh, the Ransom Trilogy, When Jupiter Comes Down to Earth, um, in that Descent of the Gods chapter. But um, we don't have time for that, so I'd encourage you to read it in your own time. If I also had time, I would play you um, Holst's Planet Suite. We listened to a bit of it uh, as we were assembling in our chairs. 
I expect many of you know the Planet Suite. Lewis knew it and loved it. Um, describes it as a rich and marvellous work that moved him very greatly. And when a correspondent wrote to Lewis to, to congratulate him on the Descent of the Gods chapter and remarked upon its similarities to the way that Holst had treated the planets musically, Lewis wrote back and said, well, of course there's this similarity because we're both working out of the medieval astrologers. But his imaginative interest in this old astrology goes back even earlier than the Ransom Trilogy. In 1935, he published a long poem entitled The Planets, which he introduced with these words, and this is number three on your sheet. The characters of the planets, as conceived by medieval astrology, seem to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, to provide a phenomenology de geists, I think that's how you say it, which is specially worthwhile in our own generation. Of Saturn, we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Jove? Saturn was the planet of calamity and death and disaster. Lewis once said that his own generation had been born under Saturn. And he said that because his own generation was that generation that had been doomed to grow up, or rather not grow up, during the First World War. Lewis himself had been a teenage officer in that conflict. He fought for about six months before being wounded uh, when a shell fell in his trench, killing the man next to him and spattering him full of shrapnel, some of which he carried around in his body for much of the rest of his life. Uh, he thought that his own generation knew more than enough about these disastrous qualities of Saturn. But he also thought that that was a historical accident and that the qualities associated with Jupiter, the kingliness of Jupiter, were a much better representation of the heart of spiritual reality than those associated with Saturn. Who does not need to be reminded of Jove, Jupiter, he says. And so he became interested in reacquainting people specifically with Jupiter's qualities. Quotation four on your sheet uh, gives you his poetic treatment of Jupiter. We don't have time to, to read it, I'm afraid, but again, have a look at that afterwards. What are Jupiter's qualities? Kingliness, principally, we've seen that. Secondly, Jupiter is the great divine antifreeze. He's the, he's the thawing planet. We see this all over Lewis's work. Chaucer's poetry, Lewis said, was written under Jove, who brings about, he said, desires fulfilled and winter overgone. In that hideous strength, the hero, Ransom, who's become a kind of human personification of Jupiter by that stage of the trilogy, is, uh, defeats his enemies, who have names like Frost, Wither, Stone, Hardcastle, Winter. And in that same book, when Jupiter comes down, Bodily, as a planet, he, um, he overmatches the unendurable cold of Saturn. In that planet's poem passage, uh, you'll see a phrase, winter past and guilt forgiven. That was another of Jupiter's effects. He brought about winter past and guilt forgiven. Kingliness and the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt. Now, I was lying in bed five years ago in my room in Cambridge reading this planet's poem when that phrase, winter past and guilt forgiven, sprang off the page at me. And I thought to myself, I've come across this in another of Lewis's books. This is as good a five-word summary 
of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, as you might ask to meet. The white witch has made it always winter, always winter and never Christmas, and her kingdom of ice and snow are overmatched at the coming of the kingdom of Aslan. It's the central symbolic shift of the story. Winter past, and guilt forgiven. Edmund's guilt is forgiven. Edmund the traitor who betrays his brother and sisters, his guilt is forgiven, and his desire to be a king is fulfilled. For that other key quality of of Jupiter, kingliness, is also intriguingly present throughout this opening chronicle. You remember how Aslan is introduced. The, The children think that he might be a man, but they're told, Aslan a man? He's the king of the wood. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This emphasis on Aslan's kingliness especially in this opening introductory description, is especially important. And elsewhere in the story, he's described as royal. Never again is he described as royal in any of the other Narnia books. But it's not just Aslan who is kingly, it's also the two boys, Peter and Edmund. The story is really about how they become kings. Edmund wants to become a king in his own way by siding with the witch. The witch has ensnared Edmund with her promise that she wants a boy who would be king of Narnia after I am gone. And Edmund becomes convinced that this is his destiny. He wanted to be prince and later a king. He thinks about Turkish delight and about being a king. He resolves to make some decent robes when I'm king of Narnia. This set him off thinking about being a king. Eventually, of course, he realizes that it didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him king. That's when she holds the knife to his throat. And and out of nowhere, suddenly, Father Christmas appears, shouting, Long live the true king! The true king, of course, is Aslan, and he has his own plans for the four children. Aslan shows Peter the castle where you are to be king, and the four thrones, in one of which you must sit as king. You will be high king over all the rest. Over all the rest, including Edmund. Because, of course, Edmund does indeed become a king at the end of the story, but only after Aslan has demonstrated true kingship in his self-sacrifice for Edmund's sake. And as I looked into Lewis's understanding of Jupiter, I discovered, intriguingly, that this self-sacrifice is also a feature of it. If we look at his study of the poetry of his great friend Charles Williams, we find that he there analyzes a poem in which Williams had written this characteristically dense phrase Peles bleeds below Jupiter's red pierced planet and about this mysterious image Lewis comments as follows this is the final quotation on your sheet also on the screen when Williams writes of Jupiter's red pierced planet he assumes that the huge reddish spot which astronomers observe on the surface of Jupiter is a wound and the redness is that of blood Jupiter, the planet of kingship, thus wounded, becomes like the wounded King Peles in the legends of King Arthur, another ectype, that is to say another reflection of the divine king wounded on Calvary. Now I really began to sit up when I noticed this. Lewis had reason specifically to associate Jupiter with the sacrifice of Christ, which of course he reworks at the heart of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's this sacrifice of Aslan which allows the four children to be enthroned and crowned and sceptred 
in the climactic scene of the tale. The climax of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe isn't that battle that lasts for 20 minutes in the film. It's the coronation. Edmund is given the title King Edmund the Just. Susan is given the title Queen Susan the Gentle. If you look at that planet's poem passage, you'll find that Jupiter makes people uh, helms of nations just and gentle. Aslan declares after the coronation, and the professor later repeats it, that once you're a king in Narnia, you're always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. Kingliness, queenliness, monarchical imagery is everywhere in this story. So it's for these reasons, and many others, that I don't have time to go into, that I've come to the conclusion that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written to embody and express the qualities of Jupiter. This would be entirely consistent with medieval practice, which, as we've seen in that technique of transferred classicism, often chose to represent God by means of the pagan gods, particularly Jupiter, the king of the gods. Lewis wrote that medieval writers and Renaissance writers often chose to depict uh, Jove so that he was Jehovah incognito. And here in his first Narnia story, he just cleverly reverses that technique so that his god figure is Jove incognito. That is to say, he imagines Christ by means of jovial imagery. Aslan is the king. But not just this single solitary figure, figure of Aslan, the whole Narnian universe which he upholds so to speak, by his word of power, is also jovial. It's a story of winter passing and summer coming. It's a story of children becoming kings and queens. The joviality is woven into every part of the cosmos. And to many uh, ornamental details besides, Peter, more than once in this story, exclaims, by Jove, which might sound like a throwaway comment, but Lewis has put it there for a very deliberate reason which I'll come on to in just a minute. But one other thing that this, this, that this approach to the book explains is the presence, the otherwise puzzling presence of Father Christmas. Critics have often objected to the inclusion of Father Christmas in this story. How can Narnia know of a character called Christmas when it doesn't know of a character called Christ? It doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if Lewis's imaginative purpose was to express the jovial personality in his university lectures, he used to say, the jovial character is cheerful and festive. Those born under Jupiter are apt to be loud-voiced and red-faced. And he would then pause and add, it is obvious under which planet I was born. Because he was loud-voiced and red-faced. People used to say he looked like a pork butcher. He, he wasn't your typical anemic academic. So if Lewis was indeed writing this first Narnia chronicle under Jove, so to speak, we can see why he included Father Christmas. Father Christmas, loud-voiced, red-faced, and jolly, is the nearest thing we have in our popular modern culture to the jovial archetype, the jovial personality, which Lewis thought was otherwise largely forgotten. Doesn't get in every aspect of it, but gets in a good deal. So as I lay there in my bed five years ago, my mind slowly cranking, I began to think if there's this strange imaginative connection between the first chronicle and the, and the planet Jupiter, could there be a connection between the other six books and the other six planets? And it was easy to see that there was. I didn't have to force it or twist it like I had had to force my Shakespeare play theory. This one just fell into place. Click, click, 
click, click all over Lewis's work. I couldn't believe what I'd stumbled across. How could this not have been seen before? It's so obvious once you see it. Let me just summarize very quickly a few of the other Narnia books. Prince Caspian is the Mars story. Why? Well, everybody knows that Mars is the god of war, and Prince Caspian is a war story. It's the civil war, the Narnian war of deliverance, as it's referred to in a later book. Military events are everywhere in this story, and especially in the recent film version. (laughs) Mars makes you martial, gives you the martial temperament, and the word martial itself appears twice in this chronicle, never again in any of the other Narnia books. Yes, but... You know, lots of fairy stories deal with military events, and aren't there battles in some of the other Narnia books? What makes this peculiarly martial? Well, one reason is the centrality of those military events. You won't find that they are as central, even in the last battle. But what clinches it is that other major theme of Prince Caspian, which has to do with trees. You remember how Lucy tries to wake the trees? Aslan enters the story amongst the dancing trees. The trees come to the battle at the end of the story, which is well done, by the way, in the film, if you haven't seen that yet. But what does all this tree imagery have to do with Mars? For that matter, what does it have to do with anything? Why did Lewis stuff his second chronicle so full of tree imagery? It's all to do with the martial theme of the book, because Mars wasn't always and only a god of war. He was originally a vegetation deity associated with trees and forests. The month of March, when the trees come back to life after winter, is called March because it's named after Mars in this capacity. He he was called Mars Silvanus. And here we have a picture of uh, Mars uh, from a mural at Pompeii in his twin capacities as god of war with his shield and his spear and his helmet standing against a backdrop of burgeoning vegetation. Mars Silvanus. That's why Lewis puts Sylvans into Prince Caspian. They never again appear in any of the other Narnia books. So Aslan is depicted by means of martial symbolism. He can wake the trees, though Lucy cannot. Aslan can give the great war cry in that chapter called The Lion Roars, which summons everyone to the climactic battle. But the martial spirit is also abroad in the rest of the story. It's a tale of... Civil war. It's a story of children, of boys becoming hardening into knights. It's a story of girls romping in bacchanalian revelry with the trees and the growing vines. And it's also present in all sorts of ornamental details, like that chess piece which the children discover at at the beginning of the story. It could have been an unidentified chess piece, or it could have been a, a bishop, or a king, or a pawn. Of course, it is a chess knight. It has to be a knight, because this is a story of knightly courage, of that whole chivalric tradition that Lewis, as a medieval scholar, was so enthralled by and so wished to rehabilitate. Prince Caspian, then, is the Mars story. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you could guess from the title alone, because this is a story of a journey towards the rising sun. Aslan, in this book, comes flying out of a sunbeam towards Lucy. He appears in that room with her when she utters that spell to make invisible things visible. And that's because Aslan is figured in this book as the god of light. Lucy has been looking along light, and therefore the light has been invisible to her. She utters the spell. Aslan is there in the room with her. He says, I've been here all the time, but you have just made me visible. 
Aslan appears shining as if in bright sunlight, though the sun has in fact gone in on Goldwater Island, that island with the magic pool that turns things to gold. Gold, of course, was the sun's metal. What perplexed me about this story was the strange presence of dragons throughout the book. You see the dragons here on the, on the front cover of the, of the, of the book. Uh, the, the Dawn Treader itself is shaped like a dragon, and there's that central episode too where Eustace is turned into a dragon. What did this have to do with the sun god? For that matter, what did it have to do with anything? Why did Lewis put it there? Again, as I investigated the mythological background to the Roman Sol, I discovered that in Greek mythology he was known, amongst other names, as Apollo. And here he is in his capacity as Apollo Sauroctonus. Sauroctonus means lizard slayer or dragon slayer. Sora is the Greek word for lizard or dragon or serpent or worm. And it may have played a part in Tolkien's choice of the name Sauron or Sauron as his chief villain in The Lord of the Rings. Apollo is killing that lizard with his beams, with, his, with the gaze of his eyes. That lizard is being slowly um, delizarded. Now think back, to, think back to the Dawn Treader. Eustace is turned into a dragon. He is then undragoned by Aslan. It's a further manifestation of Aslan's solar characteristics as they are manifested in that book. The Dawn Treader is the sun story. Silver chair. Again, you could guess this from the title alone because silver was the metal of the moon. This is Lewis's lunar book. Aslan in this story appears in person only in his own high country above the clouds and he has to be remembered by way of signs and in dreams down in Narnia where the air is thick. And this is because the silver chair is written to embody the great divide that existed in medieval cosmology. Above the orbit of the moon everything was held to be perfect and certain and immutable but below the orbit of the moon everything was subject to doubt and uncertainty and confusion especially that uncertainty about your own mental stability which is where we get the word lunacy from someone who is under the influence of Luna. Prince Rillian, the lost prince in this story is tied up in a silver chair and is found raving like a lunatic one hour in every 24. In fact it's his only moment of sanity. The headmistress of Experiment House, that terrible co-educational school, is found raving like a lunatic at the end of the story, just before she's made a member of parliament. Uh, one little nice ornamental detail in this story has to do with those two horses. You remember the two horses that the children use to escape from Underland on? They're called Coal Black and Snowflake. And they are based on these two steeds, the one black, the other white, that, that pull Luna's chariot across the heavens in Spencer's Fairy Queen. The Silver Chair is the moon book. I'm afraid we don't have time to go into why the horse newsboy is the Mercury story nor why the magician's nephew is the Venus story. Uh, we are running out of time, and in any case, I do want you to read the book. Uh, <laughs> but we will just quickly touch on why the last battle is the Saturn story. Saturn, as I mentioned, is the worst planet, the planet of calamity and death and disaster. And in this book, Aslan doesn't appear at all until all the characters are dead. Where is Aslan? Is he now in favour of putting the talking trees under the yoke? Is he now in favour of... Uh, uh, is he now in favour of, of putting the talking beasts under the yoke? Is he now in favour of felling the talking trees? Why is he letting all these 
calamities beset Narnia. Saturn brought about calamities, but Saturn also brought about one particular good quality, namely, he could make you into a true contemplative, someone who could see beyond surface realities with a godly and penetrative wisdom and insight. And that's what we see emerging into the experience of Jewel and Tyrion and the other faithful Narnians in this story. They remain faithful to Aslan despite his apparent absence. Aslan in this book is depicted rather as Luther termed him, as the Deus Absconditus, the God who is felt only in abandonment. And it's interesting that of all scriptural verses that Lewis quotes throughout his work, the one that appears more often than any other by quite a large margin is Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But because the faithful Narnians remain true to Aslan, they are welcomed in to the heavenly Narnia at the end of the book. After Narnia has been brought to an end by, by who? By Saturn. Old Father Time is based on earlier pictures of Saturn. This is a picture of Saturn from Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London. All seven planetary gods are above the stage in that theatre. And Old Father Time, with his scythe and his hourglass, is based on Saturn. And in fact, if you look at an unpublished draft of the Narnia Chronicles, you find that Lewis had originally intended to call Old Father Time Saturn. It's there in the typescript. But he obviously changed his mind before he published the book in order to keep his planetary theme more carefully hidden. Now the question, of course, that immediately arises, if this theory is correct, is why did C.S. Lewis keep this theme secret? Surely the fact that he nowhere in his letters or his conversations remarked on this secret to anybody indicates that I'm barking up the wrong tree, doesn't it? Well, no, we've already seen that he had a psychological capacity for secretiveness if he could keep his marriage secret for the better part of a year even from his friend Tolkien he could easily keep this secret too and in any case we know that he had a fully worked out theory of literary hiddenness in the Kappa element he wrote about it for goodness sake we ought to expect this the planetary influence in each story is the Kappa element it is the cryptic element the atmosphere of the book it's the beam we are intended to look along to have disclosed the idea in advance would have been to destroy the very thing he was trying to achieve Lewis wrote in one of his academic books that the characters of the planets need to be seized in an intuition, not built up out of concepts. So if you think about the atmosphere of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you are intuiting the character of Jupiter, assuming that Lewis has been successful, which of course he may not have been, but that's another question. In intent, at any rate, Lewis was attempting to give us, in narrative form, what Holst gives us in musical form. And it's interesting how often Lewis likens the use of literary images to musical motifs. Lewis says that literary images should always exist in every possible relationship of echo and contrast and variation and development and relief and mutual support and so on and so forth. It's always the symphonic treatment of the images that counts. Jovial musicality isn't just tacked on to the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe as, a, as an imaginative afterthought. It is constitutive of the whole story and everything in it, or at least of as many things as Lewis thinks appropriate. But when Peter says, by Jove, he has no idea of the significance of what he's saying. 
The children don't know that they are in a world and in a story in that first book which is, as it were, created and sustained by Jupiter. And their unawareness of this fact is a reflection of that common human condition that I touched upon when talking about Lewis's theological interest in hiddenness. Throughout his, ap his apologetic writings, Lewis repeatedly makes this point that we have a natural tendency to be oblivious to the obvious. In Mere Christianity, for instance, he says, Since that divine power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. And in his book on prayer, he says, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And again, in his book on miracles, he says the same thing. God is opaque by the very fullness of his blinding actuality. God is too big for us to see. Like the large words which escape us on maps. But God saves his creation by becoming local, condensed, concentrated. And the children in that first story can see the incarnation of Jupiter in the form of the kingly, lion-hearted Aslan who does away with winter and bleeds for the traitor and romps with the girls, jocund revel, laughter of ladies, a phrase from the Jupiter section of the planets, who crowns the children, who promises them eternal kingship and queenship, and so on and so forth. And that is enough for the children. They don't know that their whole world is upheld by this jovial spirit, or at any rate, they don't know it with their savoir knowledge, but they do know it through connetra knowledge, through enjoyment consciousness, looking along the beam of joviality, as indeed we the readers do too. So, to conclude, those planets, those spiritual symbols of permanent value, which undergird and irradiate the Narnia books, were implanted there, I believe, as a kind of imaginative depth charge. Lewis presumably expected that his readers would eventually spot what he was up to, but he wasn't going to tell us what he was up to, because he wanted to communicate to our imaginations, not to our intellects. He wanted to do imaginatively what he had done rationally in, in non-fiction prose in so much of his apologetics where he talked about the overlookability of the divine nature. He wanted a subtler, deeper, more poetic way of writing, making each book in its totality convey this point. An influence which cannot evade our consciousness, our contemplative consciousness, will not go very deep he says. And here in Narnia he imagines God in a way which makes the medium of each book the message. So the Chronicles are indeed about Christ as he said they were, but they're about Christ in a much richer and more imaginatively sophisticated way than we've previously consciously realized. But I think we have intuited it at an imaginative level, and that is one of the reasons why the books have been so phenomenally successful that we intuit a world at harmony with itself, a world in which there is a resonance between the Christ character in each story and the world he inhabits. You could say that this was a trick played by Lewis on his readers, but it was a trick with a very serious purpose. Lewis very Socratically 
was waiting to see how soon his readers would detect the presiding and constituting spirit of these stories. If we can't detect the governing spirit of a short children's tale, why should we think we know so much about the divine spirit who upholds the actual universe in which we all live and move and have our being from moment to moment? We teach the world we create. The world Lewis created in these stories is on the surface confused, random, chaotic, like the real world so often seems to be. And yet at its heart it is coherent and purposeful and richly teeming with creative intelligence as indeed he believed the real world to be down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect. Thank you very much.